today that I want to uh, introduce you to now. Uh, Matt Waldman probably needs no introduction, um, became very famous uh, in many ways for his article, The Sun in the Sky, about the ISI and its involvement uh, in the Taliban movement, um, a cynical everyone's attention. But Matt's pedigree is much deeper than that. Um, he's a research fellow on the International Security Programme at the Belfer Centre at Harvard um, in the John F. Kennedy School of Government. Um, he has practised as an international uh, lawyer uh, in London. He served as a Foreign Office and Defence Advisor both in the UK and for the European Parliaments. Um, he's worked in Afghanistan, indeed the whole region, um, since about 2005. He's been Oxfam's Head of Policy for Afghanistan. He's been the Carr Centre uh, for Human Rights Fellow. Um, he's in his own right an independent analyst and, and uh, commentator. Um, he spoke at the Chatham House. Um, he's um, serving most recently as a senior UN official in Kabul, covering conflict resolution and reconciliation with the Taliban. Um, he's currently organising or running research on American foreign policy making uh, and conflict resolution uh, in uh, the context of Afghanistan, um, and uh, is a consultant uh, on mediation initiatives in the Middle East and Africa more generally for the NGO Intermediate. Gosh, I could go on, um, but Matthew, um, thank you very much indeed for coming. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks, Rob, and thanks, everybody, for coming. Um, I felt I'd start with just telling you, as I came in, flew in a couple of days ago, coming into London at night, the pilot on the intercom said, if you look out over London, you'll see fireworks in the distance. That's because we celebrate Guy Fawkes' attempt to blow up Parliament. There was a little silence. He said, this is the, this is the captain again. Actually, clarification, we celebrate the fact that the attempt was foiled. Um, we do not condone that kind of behaviour here at British Airways. Anyway, here to talk about something a little bit similar to that, um, given what the Taliban have been up to. But I just want to, I'll just see if this works. Anyone? Does anyone know? Should we just that one Excellent. So, talking to colleagues at Harvard, uh, I, you know, I asked them a few years ago, what makes a good talk? And they all resoundingly came back with photos. So, you've got some photos, I'm afraid. Um, I wanted to start just with my background. And the reason for that is that I'm not an academic, actually. I'm a practitioner. Um, and, so, and, and I think the background might help to explain where I'm coming from in this talk. So, as Rob said, I was in the UK Parliament and actually you know, spent three years purporting to be a foreign affairs advisor and came to the conclusion fairly early on that nobody really knew what they were talking about. And there was very little accumulated expertise on countries like Afghanistan, and yet people like me were expected to advise on it. As a result, I went out to Afghanistan and spent five years there, um, living and working there, um, as a researcher, an analyst, and a UN official. And you know, again, a lot of that experience has guided me in the research and in the, you know, the research I've done, the presentation I'll make today. Perhaps a peculiarity about my experience is that from 2010 to 12, I had a number of meetings uh, with the Taliban. And that was commanders at a local level, people who would command, say, 40, 50 men, 
um, up to figures at a political level. And very interesting meetings. And I can't resist at least just one anecdote, which was asking one commander uh, where he got his money from. The answer, Pakistan's ISI, trafficking drugs and kidnapping people like you. So we then had an interesting discussion about how much I was worth. He said quarter of a million. I insisted I was worth at least a million. Anyway, um, the, the more recent work that I've done is, is at Harvard researching um, U.S. foreign policy, uh, and that's what I'll be covering uh, in the talk today. I'm also working at Chatham House, and, uh, uh, which I you know, can talk separately about, a, a big project on political transition in 2014. So just an overview of the talk, an explanation as you know, how I came to the research that underpins this. Um, I'll just briefly look at the situation now um, as it currently stands and look at a, some data which I think is helpful to us. I'm going to argue that there were two major errors that were made uh, in the US uh, intervention in Afghanistan. I think we misjudged the enemy and we pursued a flawed strategy. Um, you know, in a way, I think what we're saying here is that th that's a violation of two of the fundamental tenets of strategy, that you know your enemy, you develop a viable strategy to achieve your goals. Now, my, the principal interest I had was not in how things went wrong, because lots of people have already done that. Look at Rajiv Chandrasekharan, uh, look at Ahmed Rashid. There's a number of people who've looked at how things went wrong. I'm more interested in why. And, you know, in a sense, what I'm looking at is, you know, this, this, we can consider causation at two levels. Obviously, there's the direct and particular causation of a given individual making a decision that has consequences. But I think we can also look, and, and that, you know, I see that as being very important. We've got to do that. But we can also look at structural factors, underlying factors, which is what I've tried to consider in the course of this research. I'm going to argue that I think there are three main structural flaws um, in US policymaking organizational, psychological, strategic, uh, psychological, strategic, cultural. Uh, and you know, there's overlap uh, between them. And just a brief word on the research that, you know, as I said, I'm drawing on my experience over five years there, um, but also on research that I did last year with, uh, you know, in D.C. largely, but with U.S. officials, 51 U.S. officials and experts, including the majority, well, 16 of those were at the Department of Defense. There's a, I've, I've included quotes from those interviews because I think they're instructive <clears throat> and often insightful um, in terms of you know, helping to explain these uh, structural uh, errors. And I will also just briefly at the end look at the implications uh, of uh, this work. 
So just the unhappy ending um, that we see today in Afghanistan. And I'll go through this very briefly, and I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with it. But the intervention, as you know at the beginning, a hands-off approach to then very significant investment in terms of troops and money. And then in recent uh, months and in the last year or two, you've seen quite a rapid withdrawal. There are now only 51,000 U.S. troops in Afghanistan from a height of 100,000. It's been a costly endeavor. It's cost the United States over half a trillion dollars. 2,200 U.S. servicemen and women have died, as you know, for over 400 U.K. soldiers. Costly in terms of Afghan lives, too, since 2007, 16,000. Uh, Afghan civilians have been killed. But what do we have from all of this as a, what is the outcome? Well, clearly, I mean, just, and again, I'm this very concise, obviously, and generalizing, but clear gains in development, um, especially considering the state of Afghanistan uh, after the Taliban regime and the civil war, and clear gains, too, in civil liberties. Um, freedom uh, to, uh, to associate, and freedom of speech. Um, but, again, as you all know, a corrupt, deeply corrupt, uh, predatory uh, regime probably saw that only last week Afghanistan's judiciary was said to be the most uh, corrupt in the world by Transparency International. Petraeus himself described the government as a criminal syndicate, and he wasn't far wrong. Um, as you know, since 2005, and, and by the way, a lot of people misjudge and misstate the commencement of significant insurgent activities, and that was 2005. It was not 2002. It was 2005. And I, the reason I say that is because I keep hearing this longest war in history for various countries. Well, actually, it may, maybe it isn't, because really you didn't have anything like a war until 2005. But... Anyhow, since 2005, the Taliban have really, you know, really mobilized, uh, pushed back uh, against ISAF and the government. And I think one of the things that I'll mention now, because I think it's been overlooked, is the Taliban counter-surge. You all know about the surge from 2009 of U.S. troops and obviously an increased increment of British troops. But really, the way the Taliban responded to that was... They actually, a number of strategic and tactical adaptations, which I can go into at another point, but centrally, the core response was a counter-surge. Um, and if we... There, I mean, that's ISAF data on enemy-initiated attacks. I mean, look at that from 2008, there at the beginning on the left, to uh, towards the end of 2012 here on the right-hand side. And it's worth just bearing in mind that in 2008, the average number of attacks per week that the Taliban was able to launch was about 200. In 2012, it, after the surge, it was about 500 a week. And essentially, what I think we need to be clear about is that the Taliban has emerged stronger after the surge than it was before it. Um, even this year... Um, a number of 
monitoring organizations are, are saying that attacks are up on last year. Um, I think a good measurement, and again, I just, this is briefly touching on the current state of the conflict, a good measurement is casualties, civilian casualties. It's an indicator, you know, that's all, but it's worth considering. And here this chart shows average monthly civilian fatalities by cause. Um, and you can see there, and this is widely available UN data from 2007 rapidly increasing. And you can see there a slight fall in 2012. And yet, when you look at 12, the, the first six months of 12 compared to the first six months of this year, you see that there seems to be an increase of about 20% or so that, that the UN is very concerned about. Um, and as you can see, the red there is insurgent-caused deaths, whereas the yellow is the pro-government. That's, uh, that's ISAF, or Afghan National Security Forces, ANSF. Worth mentioning also that, you know, and again, this isn't covered often in the media, that there's a huge amount of displacement being caused by the conflict. So on average, 2,300 Afghans displaced every week. That's figures for the first half of this year. There's a total of over 600,000 displaced in Afghanistan as a whole. But just to look a little deeper at those figures, um, the civilian casualty figures, I think it's worth <coughs> noting, and again, I, I just bring this to your attention as it often isn't highlighted, is that the, as a part of that uh, number of civilians who are being killed, you've got this increment here, which is the average monthly targeted killings by the Taliban. Essentially, the reason I highlight this, because I think it's important, and it shows that on average, you're seeing, you know, in, in say, 2013 here, you're seeing over 12 civilians a week are being assassinated by the Taliban. And I highlight it because I think it's it has huge effect in terms of those people who feel you know, are making decisions about who to support in their communities. That's just the people who are killed, not the people who are threatened or intimidated in other ways. That's huge impact on the, the ability of the Taliban to um, you know, sustain their campaign, to move amongst the population and to have a, a, a relatively benign operating environment. Just want to look at this uh, graph, which shows ISAF and NSF, the Afghan security force casualties. And again, I want to show you this because I think it, it, it says a lot about what is currently happening in the conflict. So you can see the blue here is ANP, Afghan National Police. The yellow is Afghan National Army. Um, uh, and the red is ISAF. And these are fatalities. So what you can see there is a massive increase in the number of police that are being killed by the Taliban. In fact, the average for the first half of 2013 was 75 a week and 100 wounded. It's worth thinking about. I mean, that, there is a slaughter going on of Afghan national police. That's, you know, that, that's absolutely clear. 
Uh, and in fact, the latest figures from the government just from a few days ago show that that has risen to 85 now, 85 a week, um, on average for the past six months, that is, by the way, uh, 85 a week and 200 wounded a week. That's just the police. So again, what you're seeing, that's just reflecting the fact the Taliban are turning their guns on Afghan national forces, having in the early days, or you know, a few years ago, been equally concerned with, with um, uh, international forces. So I want to come now to, okay, I said, you know, I thought there were two major errors that the US or the West made. The first, as I said, was misjudgment of the Taliban. And I'll just cover that briefly and look at next. I thought there's a second was the, the flawed strategy. So misjudging the Taliban. I think we misjudged the, just to begin with, the strength of the Taliban and the support they had. I happen to be working in Parliament for a largely marginal political individual, uh, Nick Clegg. And uh, I, I uh, submitted a parliamentary question uh, on his behalf in 2006, asking the British government, this was just as British troops were being deployed, what they thought the strength of the Taliban was. And they replied, about a 1,000. By the way, I'd submitted about a dozen other questions beforehand. It was quite difficult to get that estimation out of them. They said about a 1,000. I think British forces probably killed a 1,000 in, in 2006. Um, but, but as a former commander of ISAF said to me, NATO grossly underestimated the strength of the Taliban. I think that is abundantly clear. Um, now, of course, you know, it, the Taliban was smaller in, in strength in those days, in 2005 and 2006. But I think we didn't uh, appreciate, even then, uh, their, their strength. We didn't also appreciate the extent to which the Taliban were able to galvanize a level of support within communities. Now, the Taliban are not popular in Afghanistan. The people who actively support them, probably 10%, I would guess, something in that region. No one really knows. 10 to 20%, maybe, in parts of the south or the east. But, it's, but they were able to at least have the acquiescence of uh, communities, especially in Pashtun areas. And, of course, it's acquiescence that they need. They need people not to inform on them. That is what the Taliban need. And in many cases, that is what they got. Um, I think we misjudged their motivation and objectives. I was told by a very senior US diplomat that in mid-2009, we had almost no intelligence on what the Taliban wanted. I personally, being in Kabul over that period, every year I was being asked by, by diplomats, senior diplomats and spies, who are these guys? What do they want? It was only in 2010 that things changed. We really started to get an idea. We, of course, I'm referring to the US and to some extent the Brits and others, that they really started to, started to understand what was going on. And finally, I think we misjudged their resolve and their regenerative capacity and 
I think here the key element to consider is the fact that for many Talibs, they believed that we were invading forces. Now, we weren't, but that's not the point. The way is that they saw us, those individuals, I'm not talking about the whole population, but the way that many uh, Talib source was as invaders. And of course, if your local mullah, who you respect, is telling you that's what we are, or Westerners are, then you'd be inclined to believe it. Um, people who think that their country and their sovereignty is at risk will fight, and they will fight and die, as many of us perhaps would if, if we felt our countries were invaded. So huge sense of purpose amongst not all Talibs, there were many who were criminals and thugs, but amongst a number, especially foot soldiers, who genuinely believed that Afghanistan was invaded. And of course that gave the Taliban great ability to regenerate. So despite all of the losses, which were very significant, especially during the surge, they were able to regenerate their numbers. And they're now larger than they were back in 2006, 7, 8, in my view. I mean, and, and again, if you look at, say, Antonio Gistosi, probably one of the world's leading experts on the Taliban, he would make that case that they are in strength. Overall, they are bigger than they were before the surge. A few words about uh, what I would say was a flawed strategy. I think it was a failure to match means and ends. I think that is beholden on any country prosecuting a campaign such as this to consider rigorously at regular intervals uh, what uh, the principal goals are and how considering the context and considering the obstacles, how, the, you know, how those goals could be achieved. And I think we lost sight of the principal goal of the intervention, which was mitigating the threat from al-Qaeda. In a sense, I think what happened is there was the perception at the beginning that the way to mitigate the threat from al-Qaeda is to remove the Taliban from power and subdue them. And that that continued to be a sense of how to achieve our goals and actually became an end in itself. That became the end, subduing the Taliban, rather than actually dealing with the threat from al-Qaeda. And finally, I think we had a whole panoply of unrealistic Objectives: building a liberal and democratic state through principally our uh, activities rather than Afghan uh, work to do that. Radically improving development over a short period of time. So I think many development experts would say that is just not possible to do, especially in a sustainable way. Winning the support of the population through coin, defeating the Taliban. Unrealistic, in my view, not always consistent, and went well beyond the original goal. And just for fun, I've included the coin uh, plan uh, for Afghanistan. And let us not be surprised that it didn't work out very well. Um, so I want to come now to the core of my talk, which is the structural factors that help explain 
uh, why uh, we uh, made those errors that I talked about, misjudging the Taliban, getting the strategy wrong. And first of all, I'm going to talk about organizational factors. And within that, these three points. So first of all, acquisition of information. It's pretty obvious, isn't it, that if we're going to make good decisions, if policymakers are going to make good decisions, they've got to have good information. But actually, I think, in the case of Afghanistan, that's actually rarely the case. Why was that? First of all, I mean, there's a, obviously there's a huge number of factors here, but I'm trying to narrow it down to what I see as the most significant. First of all, rotations. That's one ambassador <coughs> telling me that just as you learn the job, you're out. 80 to 90% of the US embassy in Kabul rotates out on an annual basis. How do we expect people to understand a country that is so different to theirs, that is so complex, in the space of 12 months? And that applies right at the top. General Dunford is ISAF's 15th commander in 11 and a half years. Risk aversion. So these people who are deployed for Afghan to Afghanistan for a year actually rarely get out and actually talk to people and engage with them, build trusting relationships. And actually, if you don't build a trusting relationship, an Afghan is not going to tell you what he really thinks. It's going to take time. It's going to take years, actually, before he will tell you, he or she will tell you what they really think. Um, and as I was told by very senior a US diplomat, most diplomats never leave the compound. The embassy compound, that is. I think another problem was operational bias to intelligence gathering. So, and as I was told here by a senior DOD official, most of the intelligence is focused on trying to understand where the next attack is going to be. So big consideration of force protection, especially now the withdrawal is underway. And of course... That needs to happen. I mean, soldiers need operational intelligence. But you can't neglect some of those other fundamentals about the social, political nature of uh, uh, the enemy. I think it's worth, you know, that is absolutely consistent with what we know about the CIA and their preoccupation with actually carrying out some of some uh, uh, operational activities rather than rather than. Uh, information gathering. You know, in fact, there's a quote here I saw recently from Michael Hyden, the former CIA director. A lot of things that pass for analysis right now is really targeting. Um, secondly, under this category, interpretation of information. Now, of course, it's going to be difficult under any circumstances to interpret information in Afghanistan because there's going to be a lot of it we know from the NSA that you know, there's going to be an awful lot of it. Um, but it's going to be fragmentary uh, and it's going to be inconsistent. And I think actually one of the big problems is, is just you know, understanding what it means, as one US ambassador told. It's not that they don't have the information, it's actually understanding it. 
And that's why I think one of the key things here is a lack of specialists. Now, just one quote here. I mean, you're probably all familiar with this kind of point, but one quote. I couldn't name a single Pakistan expert at State Department. Now, just think about that. That's extraordinary. A country of 180 million that has nuclear weapons, that is home to al-Qaeda, that hosts and has supported the Afghan Taliban, and there isn't a single known expert on Pakistan at the State Department. Why is that? Well, that's because there, is, there are human resources rules that favour generalists. And people don't want to be, you know, in, in most cases, just focused on one, uh, you know, one area uh, all uh, of their career. And therefore, you have this kind of extraordinary um, absence of expertise. Um, I mean, it's worth perhaps mentioning that, you know, in, in, in 2000, if you look at language speakers, which sometimes are a reflection of the number of specialists, um, in 2011, early 2011, the US had 100,000 troops in Afghanistan and six Pashto speakers in Afghanistan and Pakistan. And of course, they have twice as many Pashto speakers in Pakistan as Afghanistan. The UK in 2010 had 10,000 troops, three local language speakers, only one of whom spoke Pashto. And I knew that, actually, because he was a spy and he was a friend of mine. And he said to me, do you know, I heard the Prime Minister at the dispatch box the other day saying, we're deploying language speakers, people who can speak Pashto to Afghanistan. He said, I was looking at that thinking, shit, that's me. (laughs) (laughs) So... Secondly, in terms of interpretation of information, we don't have the specialists in our governments. So what do they do? Very late in the day, they import um, uh, expertise. The problem there is that when you look at the people who are on General McChrystal's team or General Petraeus's team, they hadn't spent... And this was... I mean, this was a member of... Uh, McChrystal's team told me this that most of them hadn't spent much time in Africa they didn't actually know much about Afghanistan rather they, had, they were some of them you know, military experts or experience in counterinsurgency and there was a sense that they were appointed because they kind of would be likely to agree uh, with what um, their generals wanted and there's a concern also is that when you bring someone in, and again, this was, this was a comment made to me by one of, by, by one of the uh, experts that was recruited by Holbrook, um, you know, who said, they won't really trust us, so we can advise. Yeah, and, and actually, this individual was, was very familiar with Afghanistan, but they wouldn't take his advice seriously because he wasn't one of them. And I think finally there, the problem of... You know, we know that there are pre-existing, preconceived ideas about, you know, what the campaign is about, who the enemy are, what we're trying to do, and there's a lot of pressure on people to sort of fit information into those paradigms, as the quote makes clear there. Finally, under organisational factors, is the absence, in my view, of self-evaluation, and. 
as as I was told by U.S. official U.S. officials, that there's a reluctance to give bad. No one wants to give bad news. Not good uh, for the career. Sometimes not good for the institution. Um, and there's a reluctance to challenge openly um, uh, official policy. So you see these quotes here, which um, reflect that. I mean, that's an extraordinary quote there uh, underneath about you know, not being able to say you made the wrong choice. Of course, it's very difficult to change course if you can't admit that you've made a mistake in the first place. And of course, there are some measures that um, are taken. So there's military red teaming. But of course, that is largely an attempt to identify vulnerabilities and is largely operational. Uh, and it's also constrained by the lack of knowledge and experience that I just mentioned. And, of course, there's a government accountability office in the United States. There's CIGAR, the special inspector. But I think there's a problem there anyway because many of the um, indicators that we use to measure what is happening have a success bias. So, in other words, they measure inputs and outputs rather than quality, utility and impact. So the second main area that I want to look at in terms of structural causes uh, of errors is psychology. Um, and these are the three points that I want to cover. And you'll be familiar with a lot of the theoretical work that has been, you know, Robert Jervis, Wurzberger, Tetlock, Stein. You know, a lot of people have written about uh, these sorts of factors. Um, so first, Manichaean struggle. Um, now, what I found in the course of this research was that the idea of this struggle of right against wrong, good against evil, was that it lasted long after George Bush and his with or with against, you know, you're either with us or against us uh, philosophy. Um, I think it, it manifests itself to some extent, in a reductionism, so a simplification of what is inevitably quite a complex situation. And I think, by the way, I, I don't think this is a marginal issue. I consider this to be one of the fundamental reasons that we got it wrong. Um, we assumed that you know, there was an enemy it was, and that all of the people who were fighting us uh, must be must be bad, and of course, as you know, that simply isn't the case. As I said, many people were fighting because they thought they were invaded. They decided to sacrifice their lives because they felt that that was the right thing to do. Now, of course, they were wrong. Actually, they weren't invaded. The intention was never to occupy and exploit Afghanistan, but many people thought. That was what we were there for. And when you consider the number of civilian casualties that we were causing, and the, you know, the propaganda, uh, the myths, the history of Afghanistan, it's easy to understand how people could have that conception. I think what happened, when you, when you take that kind of binary approach, you misjudge your allies because there's an assumption that my enemy's enemy is my friend. 
Um, and that is not always the case, as is clear with the government of Afghanistan, in that many of those figures were in it for themselves uh, and were exploiting the people, exploiting their positions of power. You see that there, uh, that quote uh, from uh, an advisor at the Department of Defense. And the final point here, I think, is this oversimplification and demonization of the Taliban. The idea that the Taliban are somehow less than human. Perhaps, uh, you know, one might, uh, you know, Ken Booth's sort of analysis, you might say it's ethnocentric bias. Um, and again, we're unable to see uh, the sense in which they may be driven uh, by legitimate grievances or ideas. Um, I think the consequence of all of this, by the way, is that it, it led to a kind of z perspective which saw the conflict as a zero-sum confrontation. And that, in its turn, precluded the idea there could be any kind of outreach or negotiation with the Taliban. And, of course, that happened. That has happened in the last three years, really, two, two and a bit years, um, in a complete reversal of uh, international policy. And I, because I think this is so important, I just wanted to look at, just very briefly, briefly is why, why that happened. Why did we see it in this way? Well, some of the interviewees I talked to, you know, I talked to said it was propaganda, polarised rhetoric of the Cold War and the war on terror. I think, and it came through some of the, in some of the interviews, that lack of empathy and perspective-taking has something to do with this. As this um, military official told me, we didn't get inside their minds. Um, and a sense that actually trying to really understand why they were doing what they were doing was dangerous or wrong. And clearly, in my view, you've got attribution error at play. Um, where, obviously, undesired behaviour ascribed to dispositional rather than situational factors. Um, the quote there uh, from a US official. And, you know, that last quote reflecting what we know and what we should expect when we see attribution error. Uh, that, you know, the, we won't appreciate how we are seen by the other side and the, and the extent to which perhaps we cause their behaviour. And of course it's vice versa too. Exactly the same on the Taliban side. The final point uh, I'll make on uh, psychological uh, factors. In fact, there's two, sorry, two more, two more points, but overconfidence. There's ambitious war fighting and counterinsurgency and state building goals. Um, if you look at the London Compact 2006, it looks like a work of fiction. Uh, and this is me perhaps being overconfident in thinking I could persuade General Petraeus that he was wrong. Um, and why is that? You know, the can-do attitude, the idea that 
you know, no mission is impossible. What was interesting, and I didn't really expect, was that that's also uh, found at State Department too. And the sense that you cannot argue for something that is mediocre. And that is a big problem in a part of the world where the vast majority of outcomes of anything you do are likely to be mediocre. Again, looking at why, well, people you know, had different explanations as to why, and some of them are mentioned there. Clearly, there are some benefits to confidence, but as you well know, dangerous too if you're attempting to do things which cannot be done. And then the final, so this is the final point on, on psychological factors, is processing of unfavourable information. And as you know, um, all of these uh, types of response to bad news uh, were at play in Afghanistan. Um, and it's summarised nicely by that quote from a senior US diplomat. Um, you know, how many times have we heard we'll break the Taliban? It never happened, and yet they always found claim, always found facts to substantiate those claims. When I think you then look at other factors, so prospect theory, the fact that you, on the whole, it seemed that people were willing to take more risks to avoid losses uh, than they were to make further gains uh, means that you know, we were defending what we'd achieved in those early years. We didn't want to let it go. When you add to that the weighing of sunk costs, which of course not a strictly rational thing to do, you know, we've, let this, we've lost this many lives, we've spent this much money, we have to keep going, that kind of attitude. When you consider all of these things together, what I think it means is that you, there is a powerful effect of you know, weighing against the revision of defective policy. So I want to just come to the, the third and final element to the structural factors that I think help explain <coughs> major errors. And there are these three that I want to look at. First of all, faith in force. There is a postcard that I picked up at ISAF headquarters. Um, not one I sent back to my mum, by the way. Um, I think, you know, there's often an assumption that decision, make, decision makers are capable of making good strategic decisions. I do not believe that to be the case. The tendency to turn to force, even to address political problems. It's interesting if you look at you know, if you read the Woodward book uh, and look at the debates inside the White House in 2009, the choice there was between counterinsurgency and drone strikes, essentially a counter-terror approach. There wasn't a consideration of 
a political approach of seeing whether uh, U.S. ends could be achieved through uh, negotiations. Now, and of course, the U.S. did come to that conclusion uh, in 2011-12, by which time it may, we, we still don't know, it may have been too late. Um, most, you know, and again, this is coming from what I'm being told by U.S. military officials who are speaking frankly and on, in a non-attributable basis, that the, there was a heavy pressure to deliver results in the short term. Got to show some progress. So they often, even at the highest levels, cons, you know, they're concerned with uh, achieving, and what can you most easily achieve on a short-term basis, either building stuff or killing people. Very often, it was uh, the latter. Um, and as one very senior uh, U.S. military uh, figure told me, there was this conception that when you kill bad guys, what you leave behind will be better. Obviously, as we all know, that simply isn't the case, certainly in Afghanistan and in many other places. Um, I think, you know, if you look at some other work that's been done on this, you, you, know, you can see why that simply didn't apply. And actually, even in the American military, if you look at a paper by General Mike Flynn, who was a very talented intelligence officer in Kabul, who said, it's an inescapable truth that merely killing insurgents usually serves to multiply enemies rather than subtract them. Yeah, I think that's a fair proposition. I think it probably applied in Afghanistan. Yet still, the emphasis, particularly under General Petraeus, was to kill as many insurgents as he possibly could. Um, again, linked to this point, the idea that politics is subordinate or you do it later. Um, and really, at the end of the day, I think the consequence was Instead of strategy, as a substitute for strategy, what we had is an effort to build more forces uh, or deploy more of our own forces or build more Afghan forces. It was a sense that force was the only real tool that matters. The second point I want to cover under strategic cultural factors was this idea that if you work hard enough, you will achieve results. And there's a lovely quote there from, again, a DOD official, that activity is equated with success. Of course, that is not rational and is not necessarily the case and often will not be the case if, the, if what you're doing does not contribute to your goals. And... Alongside that, you had the flood of aid, which you're all aware of. And I've just shown it graphically there. And consider for a moment that the, US, that the Afghan government's revenue from its own sources within the country was around $2 billion. And US, this is US assistance was $15 for 2010 and 11, Absolutely flooding Afghanistan and, of course, perpetuating um, corruption. And you know, one might also make the point here that 
you know, more putting more resources into a policy that is not working does not make it work. Um, fairly elementary, but we violated simple principles such as that. And the final point I want to make on strategic cultural factors is misreading of history. Sorry about the uh, line there. Uh, mystery, I'm not trying to cross analogies out. I think that's an important part of it. Um, a misreading of history and false analogies. So I think that oversimplification of history or neglect of it was a major problem. And as a very senior former diplomat told me, he thought America was beguiled by its victories over Germany and Japan, which, again, play into that sense that if you use enough force, then you'll derive results. <clears throat> Obviously, the United States could have learned from ex the experience of the Soviets in Afghanistan, where there are some remarkable parallels in what happened, and their own experience in Vietnam. You only need to look at you know, works like uh, Barbara Tuckman, uh, Gordon Goldstein, to know that, again, many of the same kinds of errors were made uh, in Vietnam. And I think one might add to this the seduction of prevailing doctrines. So, of course, neoconservatism, uh, the counterinsurgency doctrine, treated as religion, as one uh, official told me. And the idea that you just find what works elsewhere, or supposedly works, and you apply it uh, to another situation, to, in this case, Afghanistan. And there, a comment made to me that we carried all the Iraq lessons to Afghanistan. And some were applicable, many were not. The attempt, obviously, in mind there, was the, this, the, the idea that one could replicate the Anbar awakening when there were very different circumstances in Afghanistan. So I just want to review okay, what I've argued, that there were two major errors, misjudging the enemy, bungling strategy, and that I think that they're explained by interrelated structural flaws. Of course, there are direct and particular explanations too, but in this case, I'm interested in the structural explanations, and I think they fall into those three categories. One might add to that the problem of domestic politics. And of course, as you know, uh, Obama uh, presided over the surge. And as I was told by a senior political aide, the idea was to surge and get out. And of course, many would argue that that in itself undermined the prospects for the, for the surge succeeding. It is worth, I think, bearing in mind that so far as I am aware, and tell me if I'm wrong, there is no precedent in history for a commander-in-chief to announce the date of withdrawal for forces that have not yet been deployed. If you know of such an example, please tell me. But I think that was extremely problematic because it undermined uh, U.S. Uh, political leverage and it gave the enemy an advantage. It knew our plans. It, the Taliban, to put it in simple terms, knew that they could outweigh 
the United States of America. And they did. They are doing now. What's the consequence? I think it's system failure. I think the system uh, doesn't uh, succeed uh, given these uh, flaws in it. Um, and just as a final point, I mean, I think there's a number of things that we could do, but I think recognizing these flaws, greater humility and prudence, and I think inevitably there's got to be structural changes in the system to compensate for those flaws. And these are the sorts of things that I think might or could potentially make a difference, especially given that the United States will intervene elsewhere in the world. And if we want to see them, if we want to see them avoiding the kinds of errors they made, I think we've got to see these kinds of changes, whether it's building expertise, and that means country or regional expertise. I think we've got to see them self-evaluate rigorously and also test assumptions and beliefs. I think assumptions arise and they're just perpetuated and they don't get challenged within the system. In my view, that's got to happen. And finally, you'll be relieved to hear, um, I think actually what is necessary is an attempt to empathise. And this is not going to solve all of the problems. But I think it's clear to me that the United States failed to understand fundamental attitudes, where these people are coming from, as one interviewee put it to me. They didn't get inside the minds of their enemy or their allies. Uh, and whether you're thinking of the Taliban, the government of Afghanistan, or senior security figures in Pakistan. And I think that has to be a critical factor in avoiding the kinds of major errors uh, that were made in Afghanistan. Anyway, I've talked for long enough, but many thanks. Look forward to the question and answer. Thank you. Thank you.